millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the World in Sport. I'm Vinnie Wiley. This week, Fiji closes in on Seven's glory as Samoa falters again. Fiji cricket begins their World Cup countdown. And the Oceania football community comes to the aid of Vanuatu. But first, the International Rugby Players Association says it is time for World Rugby to reassess the way it funds second-tier nations to ensure their best players can afford to take part in the World Cup. Manu Samoilok Daniel Leo says some Pacific Island players face losing up to 40% of their club salary by opting to play in the global tournament. International Rugby Players Association Executive Director Rob Nickel says the issue is back in the spotlight in the countdown to Rugby World Cup 2015. Anyone who's aware of the issue will have a lot of empathy for the player. It puts them in a really difficult position. They want to play for the country. They want to return to Rugby World Cup. But the reality is, unless you are playing for one of the top nations who have an independent and strong revenue stream and contracting model and, and are able to play, pay their international um, players something that is reasonable, unless you're part of those particular teams, effectively it costs you uh, money to attend a World Cup. And um, and where it costs you is in lost wages or lost contract opportunities uh, with your with your club game. And uh, you know it, everyone empathises with the players ourselves. World Rugby empathise with the situation, and certainly I think you've got to empathise with the clubs as well. You know it's not easy for them. I think for a long time the world game has relied, and I think um, to a certain extent put their faith in the goodwill of the clubs to continue to keep players on contract and to make a link between having a World Cup player as part of their mix but in the commercial reality you've got now they're not prepared to do that so we need a solution it's a commercial problem um, make no bones about that and um, and it's gonna it's gonna remain and, and quite possibly get worse until we come up with a commercial solution to be frank. Is it getting tougher financially for these clubs and therefore is this issue becoming more prevalent where it's you know more imperative for the clubs to get the most value out of those players? It's not just in the UK. I mean, if you if you are a player who plays for anyone other than the All Blacks at a World Cup, you are going to be absent this year in New Zealand from the ITM Cup. And so if you're a provincial union contracting a player who plays for Tonga or Samoa or the USA or Canada, for example, and you are looking to contract the player and he turns around and says, well, actually, I was looking to go to the World Cup, the province has to release the player. And in the Northern Hemisphere, the club has to release the player. And when you go to contract that player, you're going to say, well, hang on a sec, you're going to be away for six or seven weeks. So we probably aren't going to pay you what we otherwise would have paid you. And, you know, you can understand that, Stan. The answer, I don't believe, lies with looking at the clubs or provincial unions in our case. Um, the answer is, is that it is a commercial challenge and it, it needs a commercial solution. And we believe, from a player's perspective, that needs to be driven by Rugby World Cup itself and World Rugby. So are we talking sort of compensation in some way? You know, you can look at it as compensation or you can recognise that for Rugby World Cup to continue to grow and develop its legacy and its commercial success, and bear in mind 2015 Rugby World Cup will be 
by far and away the most successful commercial Rugby World Cup of all time and it just continues to grow if you like, then it's going to have to ensure that it maintains its integrity and that if anything it grows its value in terms of being recognised as the world's premier tournament where the very best teams come to compete and those teams are made up of their very best players that are available. If you're you know, in the top seven or eight countries in the world, you know, they have a revenue streams and they have finances that, are, that allow them to afford to contract and pay their players to pay for them. But if you're in the other 12 to 13 teams, those finances aren't really available. But at the end of the day, from a Rugby World Cup perspective, they are generating a lot of money in this tournament. And that money, whilst at the moment it all goes back to World Rugby and World Rugby have their models for distributing it, I think it's time to relook at that distribution model and say, well, actually, some of the commercial proceeds from Rugby World Cup really need to be invested in ensuring that we maintain the integrity of the tournament by allowing other countries that don't have those revenue streams some funds to be able to contract their players so that the clubs don't have to pay them to play for their country. The country itself can actually say, well, it's okay if you take a hit on your club contract. We actually have funds from Rugby World Cup that we can pay to ensure that that you are not out of pocket. It just does seem bizarre that you're going to have a group of players in around about 12 to 13 of the teams competing at World Cup and it's going to cost them personally to play in a tournament that is generating you know, well in excess of £170 million profit. What does World Rugby give to the individual unions in terms of you know, Rugby World Cup expenses and, and, and what they cover? It's quite a historical model. So what happens is the costs of competing in the tournament are covered. There is a, a nominal participation fee, which does increase if you progress through the tournament, but you know, we're talking very much nominal. That is what is provided for the teams. The, the tournament is set up on a model that maximises profit, and that profit is then passed back to World Rugby itself. Okay, World Rugby then, through their council structure, and with the 119 member uh, countries, albeit that the, the, the actual voting around the table is effectively controlled by the top 10 nations in the world or top 9 nations in the world, they effectively have their models. Now, at the moment, and, a, and this is a, a rather rough analogy, the top 10 nations all get paid £7.5 million for competing in the Rugby World Cup, and that money is seen as recognition of the fact that there's no June or November tests in a Rugby World Cup year, and so those top 10 nations lose money, but out of a profit of, for example, £170 million plus at this next tournament, £75 million has gone out the door straight away to compensating the top 10 teams. Uh, those top 10 teams, most of them have independent commercial revenue streams outside of that, and they have arrangements with their players and they pay their players to play for their country. So the top 10 are kind of taken care of. Now the other, if you like, Tier 2 nations, they receive grants over a period between World Cups, if you like, and there's different levels and different criteria around those grants. There's a lot of investment in high performance, for example, £8 odd million pounds into Samar over the last 10 years or so. But that money is effectively not set aside to pay players. That's to invest in high-performance infrastructure and people to help bring players through, if you like, and, and to bring coaches through and to prepare a strong high-performance environment and help those developing nations in Tier 2 to develop. And, and on the whole, that's all well and good, and that's great. But the difficulty is, by not being able to separate some of that money off to actually pay the players, you're kind of investing in the infrastructure and you're investing in creating a high-performance program. But when it really comes down to those countries actually needing their players to compete in World Cup, they can't get them or can't necessarily guarantee they can get them because of this conflict that we're talking about. And every World Cup, you know, two to three players per team that have kind of, for one reason or other, chosen not to come to World Cup or not represent their country because of this issue. 
And our concern from an international rugby players association is that it's going to become more and more prevalent. And, you know, we have urged for some time for Rugby World Cup to look at its commercial model and for World Rugby to look at that commercial model. And I think, once again, the articles that um, that Daniel's been quoted in, and it's great to see a player being up front because we often get told, oh, show us examples, give us the facts, and, and we try and give it. But there's nothing like a player actually personally sharing his story of what he's going through in a pretty matter-of-fact non-judgmental, non-blame way. He's just saying, hey, this is the reality. He, he mentioned census. In the article, um, you know, Daniel's obviously going through it and, and he's talking very much from a, if you like, Samoan perspective. But there will be a number of players across Tier 2 Nations going through this issue. And so I think, you know, what he's done is done the game a favour. Hopefully it draws some more attention to this particular issue and, and will rugby recognise that we actually need to do something now. We can't afford just to continue to let it drag on. You guys have been in dialogue with World Rugby. I guess this is... Yeah, there's no, we, no we silver bullets. Our, we but... had our quarterly kind of catch-up last night, actually, by video link and things. And, and we actually brought up the issue of player release and assurance because it's a constant thing that everyone has been putting a lot of work in. And the World Rugby guys have put a lot of thought and a lot of energy into here. And, and there's a lot that has been done to try and lessen the barriers to players being able to play for their countries at that developing nation tier two level. Uh, insurance and, and, and things like that, you know, funding the Pacific Nations Cup, funding competitions for those tier two countries to play in so that those barriers are removed, funding team management, funding high performance programs. But we did talk about this and, and we did say we think this has got the risk of dominating Rugby World Cup 2015 because we know there are a number of players out there suffering this arm wrestle. Do I play for my country and compromise my professional career? Or do I not? And that is a black and white thing that a number of top quality players who would otherwise be absolute certain selections for their countries are going through right now. So the fact that it's come out now is, is kind of interesting, I think, and, and we're not going to shy away from it because we recognise it's a problem for the game, it's a potential problem for the integrity of Rugby World Cup moving forward, and we would very, very much like to be part of looking at what solutions might exist. We have put some on the table in the past, but the thing we keep talking about is it's about maturing the Rugby World Cup World Rugby commercial model because it is a commercial problem and it's going to require some form of commercial solution. That's the International Rugby Players Association Executive Director, Rob Nickel. Fiji are on the cusp of Sevens Rugby glory after winning the Cup title in Glasgow to overtake South Africa in the World Series standings. Fiji recovered from a half-time deficit to beat New Zealand 24-17 in the final to claim their fourth title of the season and its sixth straight win against the All Black Sevens team. It capped a memorable two days in which Ben Ryan's team also secured qualification for next year's Rio Olympics. It's been a cracking weekend and hopefully we've got all 12 fit and healthy for next week. I'll have to get my week right, but like Oscar said, we're not running away with ourselves. Five points is good and we've got that extra point with our points differences significantly better than South Korea and New Zealand. So they've got to be six points better than us, anyone. So third place does it for us next week for certain, but um, we want to win back-to-backs in London. Um, it'll be a good place to do it. The All Black Sevens coach Sir Gordon Titchens concedes they will struggle to defend their World Series title, but says as long as they have a chance, he's confident they can pull it off. New Zealand are eight points behind Fiji and will likely need to win at Twickenham this weekend and hope Fiji and South Africa are knocked out before the semi-finals. We're in with a chance, you know, and um, anything can happen, as we've, we've seen right throughout the year, and uh, South Africa's still there. They're a couple of points shy of Fiji as well, and we're just a couple behind them, so, mate, it's going to be really tough, and uh, looking forward to the tournament of London. It wasn't such a happy weekend for Samoa, who lost all of their pool games and were beaten by Wales in the bowl quarterfinals. The Manu did finish on a high, beating Japan and Portugal to take out the Shield final, and they remain at ninth in the overall standings.
Adding to Samoa's woes, England finished third in Glasgow to move 16 points clear of Australia in the race for the fourth and final Olympic qualifying berth. That means the green and gold are all but certain to join the Manu in November's Oceania Olympic qualifier in Auckland, from which only the winner will advance to Rio. Cricket Fiji has unveiled their squad to compete at next year's Under-19 World Cup in Bangladesh. All 14 players that helped Fiji win the East Asia Pacific title in February have been retained, with four new additions, including three based overseas. The January tournament will be the first time Fiji has contested a Cricket World Cup at any level, and National High Performance Manager Joe Ricker says they want to be as prepared as possible. Great opportunity for the kids to start honing down on their skills. Uh, Shane's obviously got a lot more coaches now to uh, work with the boys, so we just want to make sure we cover all bases uh, leading into the World Cup and um, we've got a few uh, tournaments planned uh, for the boys prior to the World Cup, and uh, we just want to make sure everyone's all set and ready uh, come Bangladesh. Yeah, so we're talking in May, and the World Cup is until January, so uh, quite a long lead-in time. Um, you know, what what exactly are they going to be getting up to? I mean, it's it's a very long lead-in, but I guess you want to be as thoroughly prepared uh, as thoroughly prepared as possible. Yeah, definitely. There's uh, there's, there's a few trips we've planned overseas at the moment. First of which, uh, hopefully, will be in uh, November, where the boys travel over to uh, to Sydney to play the Papua New Guinea under-19 and uh, one of the Australian uh, representative teams. Now, I'm not confirmed yet, but that's probably going to be the first of the boys' uh, competitive tournaments, followed by another planned tour to New Zealand in December. Um, there's talks for um, a pre-tour camp as well in Sri Lanka, but these are all things we see um, crucial to the boys uh, performing uh, reasonably well in uh, in Bangladesh, so uh, we just want to make sure that the boys get the best uh, preparations uh, moving forward. And the squad is primarily the one that uh, won you the tournament in New Zealand to earn qualification to the World Cup. Um, talk me through the overseas guys that have come into it, and and also what are the chances of anyone outside that squad forcing their way in if they perform well? We've kept the the fourteen that travelled. The two overseas base players were always part of the plans. Um, unfortunately, they just couldn't make the well in the New Zealand uh, trip because of uh, studies and uh, commitments overseas. Uh, we we are very lucky um, to have them as part of the squad. Um, they bring in a lot of uh, a lot of experience and a lot of you know, the exposure overseas. You know, it's, it's going to help the boys a lot. We've got a good good program here locally for um, our underage teams and. You know, we just want to make sure we continue. Uh, and uh, in terms of the long-winded preparation to the World Cup, I guess this is the most focused the under-19s have possibly you know, ever had, and, and part of that is because you've qualified for the World Cup. So have you been able to you know, spend more money and, and put more resources into the team as a result of obviously making it to that tournament? Yes and no. We run on a tight budget here at Cricket Fiji. This is the first the boys will be involved in back-to-back years competing at under-19 level. We want to make sure that they get, uh, they understand how important it is for us moving forward with all the systems we have in place. You know, we, we want to capitalize on the, the exposure that the boys have given us by qualifying for the first ever World Cup. Um, and that's slowly uh, coming to fruition. We've got uh, recognition from a few of the companies here in Fiji. Um, stocks are ongoing at the moment. But you know, we just want to make sure the boys are grounded. They understand how important it is for us to, to perform well in the World Cup. And we'll do everything we can to make sure that they have a it's a smooth process for them, and they have they're in the best environment to learn, whether it be here in Fiji or overseas. That's Fiji Cricket's high performance manager Joe Ricker. The Oceania football community has come together to assist Vanuatu in the wake of Cyclone Pam. 
Oceania Champions League winners Auckland City FC have donated four hampers of Nike kit, targeting people in areas most in need, such as Sheffer and Tafia, which have less opportunities to attain much-needed football resources. The gear was handed over to staff at the Vanuatu Ministry of Climate Change and the Vanuatu Football Federation by the Butterfly Trust, who along with Auckland City have made donations to Vanuatu education and sports projects since 2012. Meanwhile, New Caledonia and Vanuatu's under-23 football teams will face off in Noumea this month as part of their Pacific Games preparations. The two matches at Stade Numedali on Sunday and Wednesday also have a charitable element, with the New Caledonia Football Federation donating all gate takings back to Vanuatu to aid in the Cyclone PAM recovery effort. And that's the World in Sport for this week. I'm Vinnie Wiley. As always, thank you very much for listening.